Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond. I'm Emma Johnson. And I'm Mia Beach, and we're your hosts for this program. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we want to share some prison-related news. According to the Associated Press, the price of incarcerating each of California's 130,000 inmates will reach over $75,000 within a year. This record amount will exceed the cost of attending Harvard University. California will incarcerate over 11,000 fewer inmates in four years' time because in November, voters in the state approved earlier releases for many prisoners, and court orders related to overcrowding have lowered the prison population by about one-fourth. Despite that, Governor Jerry Brown's budget for the fiscal year that begins on July 1st includes an even higher budget of $11 billion for the Corrections Department. In the last two years, the cost of incarcerating each inmate in California has risen about 13%, or almost $10,000. In other states, the costs are lower. For example, in New York, the cost is approximately $69,000. In California, salaries and benefits for prison guards and medical professionals are responsible for much of the costs. A diverse coalition in Utica, New York, organized a solidarity demonstration outside an immigrant detention center there. Ice Free Capital District, the Industrial Workers of the World, Troy Sanctuary Movement, and the Unitarian Universal Society of Saratoga Springs mobilized specifically to support Ricky Morgan, a local resident threatened with deportation to Jamaica after being seized during a routine check-in meeting with ICE. These arbitrary arrests are becoming increasingly common across the country, leading many to target immigrant detention centers for solidarity actions. On May 10th, William Barnhouse became the 350th DNA exoneree after an Indiana judge granted a motion by the Delaware County Prosecutor's Office to dismiss the charges against him from a 1992 rape case. New DNA evidence has proven that Barnhouse was innocent of the crime. With Delaware County Prosecuting Attorney Jeffrey Arnold's consent, the Innocence Project and the Wrongful Conviction Clinic at Indiana University McKinney persuaded a Delaware County court to reverse Barnhouse's conviction on the basis of this new evidence. Arnold's decision to dismiss the indictment against Barnhouse, who for his whole life has dealt with serious mental health conditions, ends his 25-year struggle for justice. Barnhouse said, quote, It was rough. I was always innocent. I'm glad it's finally over. I feel so happy. Unquote. In December 1992, Barnhouse was convicted of a rape that occurred in Muncie, Indiana. He was sentenced to 80 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. And now we briefly share the following updates from an outside supporter of the prisoners' movement in Michigan. On September 9th, 2016, prisoners from around the country rose up on a nationwide prison strike. Uh, Michigan prisoners at the facility Kenross, which is in the state's Upper Peninsula, went on strike that day. So that means that the normal maintenance and labor that keeps the prison going, which is what prisoners do, was suspended because the workers were on strike. The prisoners do the work to keep the facility going. They do janitorial work, they work in the kitchen, and so they went on strike, and that means the prison just didn't function that day. The next day, September 10th, prisoners up to 400 marched through the yard, chanting slogans and raising demands of the administration. 
And afterwards, the administration um, sent in a, a tactical squad that attacked people, put them, zip-tied their hands and threw them in the rain, stole their stuff, threw away their stuff, and then transferred something like 180, maybe 200 people, something around there, to other facilities and raised their security statuses. So 180 people were put into solitary confinement, and they were there for a very long time. Recently, 100 of those people were released, and there are 80 remaining. Those 80 are remaining in what's known as Oaks Correctional Facility. Um, Oaks is considered the worst run of all of them in Michigan. It has a history of suicides, attempted suicides. Prisoners at Oaks are often denied appropriate medical health care, including medication. Uh, we've heard a report that someone was told once that they need to harm themselves to get treatment. So there is a call-in campaign to demand that all the charges of these prisoners be dropped, that they be removed from disciplinary segregation, that they be returned to their previous security levels, and be put into general population, and that there be no further retaliation against them. So if you want to make a call, that'd be very helpful. Uh, you can call Heidi Washington, who is the director of the Michigan Department of Corrections, at 517-241-7238. You can also call the Oaks Warden Thomas Mackey at 231-723-8272. The prisoners at Oaks Correctional Facility that are in solitary confinement right now have been cleared to be returned back to general population by the Michigan Department of Corrections. But the warden, Thomas Mackey, has, for some reason, decided to keep them there. Prison in general is terrible, but solitary confinement is, seems by every human rights group to be considered a form of torture. And so they've been torturing these people for months now. So since this retaliation, after September 9th, there have been a number of solidarity actions and campaigns taken to support the people at Kinross that have been transferred. There have been um, demonstrations at the Michigan Department of Corrections facility, the building in Lansing, Michigan. There have been calling campaigns, multiple calling campaigns over the last six months. Whenever various things arise, like we hear of some retaliatory punishment or we know that people are still being kept in solitary confinement. So those numbers for calling again, that's Michigan Department of Corrections Director Heidi Washington at 517-241-7238 and Oaks Warden Thomas Mackey, 231-723-8272. All we ask is call in and demand that all charges be dropped, that they be removed from disciplinary segregation, that they be returned to their previous security levels in general population, and that there are no further retaliations against them. This week on KiteLine, we feature Ariana Steiger, daughter of Marius Mason, an anarchist prisoner who used to live and organize in Bloomington. Ariana speaks about how she experienced Marius' arrest and persecution, her thoughts on ongoing support, and about June 11th, a day set aside each year to support and honor Marius and other long-term anarchist prisoners. The June 11th tradition was initiated in 2004 to mark the anniversary of eco-prisoner Jeffrey Luer's arrest. He was sentenced to 22 years after he burned three SUVs in protest against the fossil fuel industry, an action which hurt no one. Jeffrey won as a release in 2009, but the day continues to be an annual reminder of the anarchist prisoners serving the longest sentences for acts of sabotage and conscience. We'll include a link to the history of June 11th on our website. Before starting with Ariana, we'd like to share a selection from Daniel McGowan's recent interview about June 11th. 
Daniel helped organize the first June 11th in 2004 before he himself was arrested for environmental sabotage, including actions against genetic engineering. Here's Daniel. My name is Daniel McGowan. I'm a former political prisoner. I've done seven years in prison for actions I took with the Earth Liberation Front, or the ELS, the late 90s, early 2000s. I think prisoner support is is really something that's needed for anyone that goes to prison. Um, unfortunately, uh, the networks that exist are, are you know, largely built around, our, you know, our comrades or people that we know in prison. I think long-term is sort of a thing that means different things to different people. I tend to think that a person that has a two-year sentence feels like it's long-term. So it's sort of a relative term. But I would say, like, uh, obviously the longer the sentence, the more solidarity and support that's needed. I think any, like, movement that takes itself, you know, seriously, uh, anarchist or otherwise, needs to provide for the consequences of, say, repression or interactions between, you know, our movement and the right wing, you know, in terms of, like, you know, interactions or incidents between, you know, Antifa and, and right wing fascists. I think without having that, without having that safety net, not only are people less inclined uh, to, to take action, to feel that they're part of a movement, but they realize that, uh, you know, it almost feels like a martyr situation where people uh, are willing to, you know, confront state power or fascists and then there's literally no one to help them or work with them while they're in prison. I think uh, as a person is in prison longer, the needs uh, often change, and I think that prison degrades and, and harms individuals, and so I think the longer you're in, the, the more it's necessary. And understanding that most people that, you know, statistically most people that go to prison come out. We also obviously have situations where we have, uh, you know, people with intense cases of political cases that are potentially, you know, they have life sentences or they have technically access to parole, but it's, it's meaningless because they get rejected all the time. And so I think the needs of long-term prisoners are, are slightly different than short-term. You know, and the, a short-term prisoner might have their eye on their outdate, and so um, they don't want to basically catch a new case or catch more time. And I think we've seen situations like with Jared Chase where his release date, you know, Jay Chase from the NATO 3, his release date has been pushed back. So he's already supposed to be out of prison, but unfortunately, due to interactions with the with the cops inside, he is, his sentence has been extended to, I believe, 2019 which is it's obviously problematic in a lot of ways. I mean, I, I think June 11th is a, is a great thing. I think, um, you know, I don't, I'm not sure if people know, but I was sort of involved in the, the beginnings of, of June 11th um, back in 2004. Um, June 11th is, is obviously, uh, maybe not obviously, but it's the day that Jeff Lewis was sentenced to 22 years, eight months in, I believe it was 2001. And, um, he got that for basically uh, burning three pickup trucks at Germania Chevrolet, and uh, so we decided. And you know, there was a there was actually a, hot, a very spirited rally and, and march, and cops got a little crazy in 2003. Um, people in Eugene, you know, sort of pulled off this act. And but in 2004, we kind of decided we wanted to do a worldwide thing, uh, so we did this International Day of Solidarity and Action for Jeff Lures and. Um, the FBI sort of aided our efforts by releasing what they called an eco-terrorist bulletin. And so all the different events around the world, there were 57 of them, 
all the different events around the world, uh, at least in, domestically, were sort of messed with by the FBI. I mean, there was like uh, a tremendous amount of law enforcement and attention paid to an event, uh, like a, a film screening in Worcester, Massachusetts. And um, I was actually in New York at the time, and we went around basically kicking in like SUVs, you know, with these fake tickets. And Eugene, they had a bunch of um, very large events. And so we did it in 2004, we did it in uh, 2005, and then I got indicted. And the people that were part of Jeff's crew kind of extended it to, you know, the save action for eco-prisoners. And so I think it's a good thing, and I think that things change and, and you know, days of action or whatever, they, they morph, I understand, you know, going from the eco-prisoners to Marius and, and Eric and now Marius and long-term anarchist prisoners. I think these sort of days are good in terms of, like, rallying support and sort of reminding everyone that we have people, in, you know, inside. I think I hope that there's like material gains that could be made for people in terms of like raising funds and raising awareness. And now some thoughts from Marius's daughter Ariana. Probably the scariest part was the couple weeks after he was arrested, where just nobody knew where he was. Um, and he wasn't able to, like, uh, use a telephone to call any family members or anything. And we were just trying to track him down. So, yeah, it was, like, two weeks before I even got, like, a phone call and, like, found out what county jail. Yeah, that was really, really surreal and hard and scary. And after that, he was uh, released onto house arrest at my grandma's house in central Michigan. I was still in high school, but kind of uh, not making a habit of going on a regular basis anyway. So I uh, I kind of dropped out and um, just went to stay at my grandma's because we didn't know how long of a process this was going to be or how much time we had. And I was just like, this is priority number one. I want to spend these last couple of months with you. I can finish up my degree whenever. Yeah, so I went and stayed there. And we at least had that summer, I think it was like a few months um, before he was taken back into custody. So we had a, a few months to sort of pretend like things were normal. He was still like on a tether and couldn't really walk to like the end of my grandma's driveway. Like he couldn't really even get the mail without like setting it off. Um, but yeah, we at least had uh, had that time. Then when he was... He was taken uh, back into county jail really suddenly in September. I had moved uh, back to Kalamazoo, and I just started back in school, uh, finishing up my senior year. And I remember getting the call, and my grandma had been out somewhere, like at dinner with friends, and he was cooking. (laughs) So, yeah, there was this really bizarre thing where I went to go see my grandma the following weekend, and, uh, and we, like, ate for dinner the leftover stew that he'd been like cooking on the stove when he was taken away i guess just to like not let it go to waste but i I remember that specifically being really bizarre and traumatic thankfully there were some really really dedicated supporters that were willing to drive me to go see him in county jail. I think it was like it was like an hour and 15 minutes each way. Yeah, so they would take me every weekend. 
and it was a pretty short visit, and uh, it was through glass, which was also really, really hard uh, to not be able to, like, physically touch him or hug him at all. But, yeah, I'm just able to, like, hold a hand up to the glass and at least, like, see him. That was the reason I moved to Kalamazoo, too. Thankfully, my dad uh, was able to find, like, a teaching job and moved up here so that I could be close enough to go visit him on the weekends. We got to we got to talk a lot at length, um, especially when he was on house rest. Yeah, and more than anything, I'm thankful for that time because uh, I mean I was kind of in a like rebellious teenage phase and sort of trying to like break away from my parents and like establish my own identity, and all of that got kind of interrupted um, by the whole arrest thing. But I do feel like we were able to start to establish a relationship as adults at that point. Yeah, we talked a lot about being sure to maintain a closeness as the years went on. I mean, I really understood. I don't know. I was never, um, I know some other family members, understandably so, I think, like, had periods of, like, feeling kind of angry or confused with Marius for, like, actions that he'd taken just, I don't know, just because it had led to this, like, long period of, of separation. But I never, I never felt angry with him. Uh, I, I think I always like kind of understood that even though this meant that he personally wasn't gonna get to be like as closely involved in my life for a while, that like he had done what he had done like for me and for my brother, <laughs> in, including like the world at large. I understood that he just had like a heart that broke for the entire world, and I kind of felt the same way. Um, so there was definitely like uh, a softness and a closeness and an understanding. Um, yeah, I felt nothing but love for him and anger at the state. I think for a very long time, I was just kind of like dealing with personal trauma and the whole situation. Um, and I was also really scared to even be, like, anywhere near political circles or, like, organizing. Um, yeah, I, I was kind of, like, gripped with this intense paranoia and, like, sort of defeat um, and thinking, like, well, even if I'm, like, not involved with any, anything that's, like, anything less than completely above board, like, I felt like, yeah, I don't know, just showing up in circles like that could, like, jeopardize my future. I was mostly just scared. I don't know. I definitely felt like through all of uh, that pain of like kind of dealing with losing a parent and dealing with like, yeah, just seeing up close the like insane cruelty of the prison system. I don't know. I mean, I felt my heart break open in a new way. I think I just felt like out of, very like personal level in my life, like a determination to be as kind as possible. And I knew that I wanted to find some way to like spend the rest of my life trying to bring some more softness and compassion into a world that seemed to be lacking. I'm in school for music therapy. That's really incredibly cool and rewarding. I'd like to, uh, at, at some point, uh, once I finish my degree, get involved with a prison if I could uh, and have it be something that I could like 
take in and bring to folks who are incarcerated. It's amazing that he still has a network of supporters at all and that people haven't totally forgotten because it's been it's been years. Um, but I think maintaining that is essential. Definitely trying to organize like letter writing parties and getting folks to commit to like being regular pen pals, which is a huge emotional commitment. And I know like nobody writes letters anymore, but I know that means the world to him um, to have like a lifeline and steady connection to the outside. And I think uh, yeah, continuing to try to organize and raise money for legal funds. Uh, he's still making baby steps on the transition. I know right now the next thing he's focusing on is a name change. So yeah, helping to raise funds for that. Yeah, I think above all, just helping him to stay connected and maintain relationships on the outside. One thing that uh, jumps out, I remember this really, really touched me. Uh, it was a couple years ago. You know, he lived in Cincinnati, uh, which is where he was when he was arrested back in 2007 or 2008. But yeah, I was back there visiting some friends, and uh, there was like an info shop that had just started up. I went to like a benefit show at the info shop and was like talking with one of the people who'd gotten it started and just saying like what a cool thing it was for the community and how glad I was that it was there. And uh, he had no idea that I was like, related to Marius in any way and he was like yeah you know like after mm-hmm. after Marius Mason's arrest like I feel like the town just kind of came together and we like felt like we had to do something and it like yeah it touched my heart in the deepest way yeah. I don't know that I mean these were like pretty young young organizers who I don't think had ever like known him directly but that it had that kind of like ripple effect uh, and is still having that kind of ripple effect. I mean, I think, yeah, above all, people are moved by the severity of the sentence, even for people who might be in the mindset that, like, <laughs> imprisonment is, like, okay as punishment at all. Um still think that 22 years for a nonviolent crime is absurd. So I think people are people are really, really moved, to, moved by that. Probably the most important thing when I first moved here to Kalamazoo was, uh, I mean, yeah, there are people that were willing to physically drive me um, to the jail to go see him that I, like, barely knew, you know, people I'd only spoken to for 10, 20 minutes in person prior. And there were people that were, I mean, kind of just, like, took me under their wing and introduced me to other folks in the community. And, yeah, that meant that meant the world. I think just like as hands-on and emotionally sincere as possible is like the support work that that means the most. And yeah, that includes like writing letters to Marius and establishing an authentic personal relationship. Yeah, or just being willing to hang out with a 17-year-old kid who moved to a new city and didn't know anybody. Yeah, things like that have, have meant the world. And I mean, yeah, in Fort Worth, it was amazing at the conference to I, I didn't really know anybody in Texas before like I'd never been to Texas before Marius was there and to make connections there and I had so many people come up and offer a bed or a couch to crash on when I was in town or to make some vegan food or whatever yeah simple simple things like that really mean a ton He's currently, he's in this 
RDAP program, which I guess was part of the sentencing, but it's uh, some kind of like drug rehabilitative program, which he has a lot more freedom to walk around the grounds. Yeah, where he was in admin, like he'd only been outside in that small cage and like only on concrete and yeah, hadn't like touched a tree or grass, um, which is insane. But he's uh, he's now able to at least wander a little bit more freely. But still, it's pretty pretty intensive. Like I think a lot of his time is pretty blocked out between uh, his job in the kitchen and uh, these like really intensive group therapy sessions. Which I, I think, in in some ways, he's felt are good and beneficial, and in other ways, have been like really, really emotionally exhausting. But I think that's only like a nine months program or so, and he's hoping that after completion of that, uh, he might be eligible for transfer into a camp, the lowest lowest level security prison. So there was at least mention of like trying to pursue that as a next step. Basically, he could wind up in California, but like it doesn't really feel like he could be any farther. Either way, it's like not drivable. It's a few-hour plane ride and expensive and difficult to get to. Yeah, it feels like he's he's about as inaccessible as he could be from family while still being in the country. Uh, I know he's a he's also hoping to get transferred into a male facility as he moves forward with the transition, which especially yeah, if you're in a lower level security. Uh, facility. He's hoping there's there's a lot more of those uh, throughout the country and several in Michigan or in like neighboring states in the Midwest. So that's that's another thing that I think we're hoping for in the future. It was difficult. We tried to establish like at least an approximate weekly time for a phone call. But I think the yeah the biggest thing about the admin unit was there was um, you never knew when he was going to be on lockdown when like the entire unit was going to be sent back to their rooms because of one thing or another and uh, during those periods he was not able to like use the phone or email or anything and some days uh, yeah I mean that could be like pretty much the entire day so that was probably the the hardest thing and it, there seemed to be a lot of funniness with his mail but yeah there would be times where a letter would be like sent back to me for no real specified reason and I would just have to resend it and it would be weeks to a month before it finally reached him. Letters are super important. I'm going to be having a little letter writing bonfire party. I think even if it's something really, really small or even if like uh, you're not able to like physically show up to show support at an event that's already happening. Just taking a few minutes to send a postcard or a letter. And there's info on how to do that up on his website, supportmariusmason.org. Even if it's just a little bit, every little bit makes a difference. And don't feel like it's too small of a comp- contribution to be significant. Most of the music in this episode was provided by Ariana herself. This has been KiteLine, 
Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine wants your feedback. You can reach us via email at kitelineradio at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. Are you or someone you care about affected by the prison system? You can call us to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512 or you can use this number to record a message to a loved one behind bars. You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on KiteLine at our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org. You can also find our podcast on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. This has been KiteLine. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening.